0: She's dressed either as a hot K-pop star or his moody mom, Franny Choi.
1: And they put the auntie in Antifa, Dinesh Smith.
0: (laughs) And you're listening to Versus, the podcast where poets confront the ideas that move them.
1: Unfortunately, your description of me is all too accurate.
0: I, I, I know, you know. It's the it's the true gender neutral look. I feel like. <laughs> Are you hot boy or fashionable mom? Is the, the answer to gender neutral clothing. <laughs>
1: See, that is the exact lane I'm trying to
0: cut for myself. So,
1: thank you. I feel you're really killing it. Scene. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Horny
0: for the whole family. Yeah.
1: Wow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, worst branding. Yikes. Ever. <laughs> yikes. Yikes. yikes! 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 Yikes!
1: Oh. How are you, Denev?
0: I am doing well.
1: Within pandemical reasons. Within
0: pandemical (laughs) reasons, yes. Um, I'm aware of what day it is of the week, so that is, you know, (laughs) we're already winning. Time is slightly tangible today, and I'm here with you, and I'm having a good time.
1: I love it when um, time is tangible, which is, like, very not often. Um, But you know what I've been thinking about recently is, you know, speaking of the past, looking at the past, is what stories we thought we were supposed to tell when Mm. we were like in our I don't know early 20s and our teens and we were like thinking of ourselves as as people who might tell stories as writers and whether we did it um, whether we actually ever completed that homework maybe it's just because I've been having these dreams recently where I like arrive at class and realize I've been taking a class and I haven't done the homework. <laughs> so I'm like, oh my God, what, have I done the homework? But, um, <laughs> but yeah, one, do you have something like that? And two, do you think that you did it?
0: Yeah, I mean, I do feel like there are like the, like I don't want to call them cliches, but like the unavoidable, I guess, like histories and selves that I feel like maybe you're, you confront, right? Totally. They maybe become cliches, right? So it's almost like, you know, like every kid who has a, absent or complicated relationship with their father you know you start saying like oh I have my dad poem right and I think that Mm -hmm. is like maybe like I feel like that was like the earliest cliche that I knew in poetry was the dad poem it was kind of like expected like oh I got my dad (laughs) poem too
1: (laughs) oh everybody everybody's got a dad poem oh okay yeah me too I got one of those. yeah you know so like you know
0: I think like I like eventually like fell into those things right like as a black writer right like I think like naturally like even though other people had like troubled slavery or social justice or all these things right had reached back into our like collective past and troubled them it wasn't like i didn't still feel called to go back and complicate that or like look at it mm. examine it for myself right mm-hmm. um and i think there's a jadedness sometimes or even like maybe like even myself that i feel like oh somebody's writing about this again you know or like um and it's so hard to fight cuz i'm like no nigga you also like felt the need and will feel the need to like go back and like dig there too i think about like people on twitter Like trashing, like, you know, quote unquote like diaspora poetry, right? Or like, Lord Jesus, like never put like a fucking like, you know, iconic fruit from your people in a poem, (laughs) lest people like call you out. But it's like, you know, but fuck it. You know, I do want the poems about that, right? I'd be an asshole if I showed up to a youth poetry slam or like a college slam and rolled my eyes every time a black or maybe gay got up there and like told a story that was maybe common and maybe I've heard 80 thousand poems about it already but it's their turn yeah (laughs) and so go on and get go on and get your cliche baby and work it out for you and now you know also you're also going to add your own funk to it to the long lineage of us having to tell that story and I think that's different than the like pressure to maybe I like what I think what I'm talking about is like the want to feed into your shared communities right which can be negatively felt as like the pressure to like write a certain type of story because you are of that people. And so you must. And when that external pressure, you know, I have to write this poem because I'm black. And also I'm the only black poet in this workshop. And so who the fuck else go write about this shit? Right.
1: Right. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, I think that's the thing that ends up putting people sometimes into pigeonholes or that at mm-hmm. least that's when I've felt pigeonholed into something like into being only able to tell a certain kinds of story. Like I was like, Oh, Oh, writers aren't writing about the Korean War, so I have to be the one to say it, you know. Mm -hmm. When little did I know, uh, writers had definitely been writing about the Korean War. You know (laughs) what I mean? But but until I got there, or like when when my world was smaller, um, for like reasons that had to do with age and also reasons that had to do with like structural things that like segregate people into certain kinds of discourse communities and like erase writers certain writers from the canon Mm -hmm. um, then I didn't know and so it was like it was like my job um, but also like I don't know I think also for me what comes to mind when thinking about this like what story I felt like I was supposed to tell I mean I guess it is the Korean War and and I was just thinking like what's my earliest memory of writing about the war Hmm. and my earliest memory of Writing about the war is as a middle school student.
0: Oh shit, beginning. <laughs> writing
1: K-pop fan fiction about the old school K-pop group Shinoa who were Korean war. I think that they were I I guess that's what it was, but it was like a like a 40-chapter war epic. Um
0: wait, wait, uh, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Hold up. I think the butterfly effect happened somewhere in that sentence. Okay, so you wrote <laughs> a 40-chapter epic. Of the Korean War that starred a K-pop band?
1: Yeah, well, they were like characters. I mean, they weren't in a K-pop band in the story. You know, they were not just like soldiers in the war.
0: No, it was just, just like Blackpink, the nurses of the Korean War. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. Like Minu was like a was a, was a soldier, and then like the- you know. <laughs>
0: I don't know who this band is, but I'm just like Dinesh, if you wrote Destiny's Child in the Civil War, this would be <laughs> Right, right. That's exactly
1: what it was. It was like it was as if like Destiny's child, but like um, yeah, but
0: like as, as if Civil Beyonce War. sat down on that bus and said, I'm not right, getting exactly. up yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it was like.
1: Oh Freddie, who have you ever been? Listen, I'm an artiste, okay? <laughs> I'm an artiste. That's what I am. Okay. So um,
0: that was very funny to me, but please continue <laughs> making I a good mean. point. <laughs>
1: to <laughs> try. But I at that age but also like continuing now as an adult, you know. One thinks about like what is a good story that I have access to? What's the like craziest most traumatic thing that's ever happened to my people, you know? Hmm. And I'm, it's like I'll I guess that's the thing that I'm supposed to write about or like that's like the interesting thing that's like painful enough for other people to be interested in or fascinated mm. by. And if I had been in a context where like that's what everybody was writing about or something then maybe it would have been different but at the time I was like this is what I got. Like this is this is my this is my ammo. I've got these five beautiful boys <laughs> and their personalities which I know really well and then also this traumatic history of my people. <laughs> so that's <laughs> what I
0: did. Um, But also, thank God, (laughs) I think, for that, you know, I feel like I'm great... I, I stand now grateful for those stories that we feel pressure or obligation or allegiance to tell. I'm grateful for them because they do... Um, in many ways, I think for writers, especially like writers like the one we're going to talk to today, Monica Sock, um, writing through and reading through and working through and complicating those stories that we feel inherited and charged to tell also make wonderful room for the spaces after that. Right. For the stories that we never knew we'd get to. And we have to move through those uh, inherited selves in order to get to maybe some future selves that are writing in landscapes that are unfamiliar um and possible for us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, We're really excited to get to share this interview with Monica Sok, um, an amazing Cambodian-American writer, debut author. Her first book, A Nail the Evening Hangs On, which is like an absolute event of a book, um, which came out last year. We got to talk to Monica about what it was like to write this book that in so many ways explicitly faces uh, the Khmer Rouge genocide um, and the traumas of that historical experience that she as a second generation um, Cambodian American has inherited. And also, yeah, like that that kind of complicated relationship with a story that you feel like you both have to tell and want to tell and also maybe feel in some ways hemmed in by and, um, you know, what complications come from that and also like what beautiful new spaces might open up past what happens with that first pass at that history. Um, so yeah, we're really excited to share this conversation with you all.
0: Monica Sock is a Khmer writer and daughter of refugees. She is the author of A Nail the Evening Hangs On from Copper Canyon Press in 2020. She has received fellowships from Hedgebrook, Kundiman, McDowell, the National Endowment for the Arts, and others. Sock teaches poetry at Stanford University and the Center for Empowering Refugees and Immigrants. She lives in Oakland, California. Here is Monica Sock to start us off with a reading from her first book.
2: Ode to the loom. Dear loom, dear box skeleton, special ordered and handcrafted from wood, you rest on the floor and wait for her to sit down with you and together weave fabrics for weddings between lovers and warriors, the survivors surviving. Your sturdy frame animates her as living portrait, simple as the chain on her glasses, the calm focus, steady hands on the shuttle, the weft and the warp, feet on the treadle. You obey the soft sheen of turquoise, cherry, and gold, wrapped at the body's waist, your gift to the body, hundreds of bodies for the new year, for the blessings of ancestors. Sweet loom, old friend of an old woman, you are an ancestor she prays to, so that when her hair falls, not as rain does, but as nails the evening hangs on, and her hands slip no longer from silk but on walls in the dark hall to her room. Her daughters will sadly dismantle you, remnants of a lost home, sacred language coded inside her native language. When she passes, you will be stowed away in the basement. You will remind us of her, you loom who have kept her company, non-judgmental witness to her secrets. You will remember best the way she works, The spots on her legs, her bare toes peeking from the edge of her sarong. The slow motion of her hand slapping flies in summertime. Or the sound of gorges rushed from her face in the quiet hours of the cloth. When she was depressed, she was depressed. She pressed against you daily and wept.
1: (sighs) Monica, thank you so much for that poem. I love thinking about the loom as an ancestor as well. Can you talk a little bit about your thinking about the loom and sort of I mean I hear like history weaving and even like connections to the role of the the artist and like family historian in there too. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about what led you to the loom as an object of that ode? Yeah.
2: Sure. So, this was the last poem that I wrote for the book. I was thinking about Praise, something to put in this book that was a little bit just provided a different angle to my history, to my family. Um, my grandmother is the first artist that I ever knew, and so when I was young, I would sit with her in front of her floor loom. This was a loom that these um, women at the Presbyterian Church that sponsored my family, my mom's side of the family, to come over to the U.S. This is this is a loom that they raised money to. And, you know, they made it, um, they got it special ordered, custom made for her. Uh, My grandmother comes from this village in Cambodia called Takeo, and um, they're known for their weaving. When I think about, like, the loom as an ancestor, I think about how special it was for me to be able to see her doing her work, um, like combing the, the threads, you know, the the. The silk scraps that she got from this Thai factory in York, Pennsylvania, she would just comb it over with like tapioca, you know, and make sure it was kind of stiff and it would have that sheen. So when you saw her fabrics, it was just like, it just seems like there was like a third color, you know. Um,
0: That sort of luminescence, right, that you can. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm.
2: I think that she wove so many different kinds of fabrics for Cambodians. And and other people who just loved her, loved what she wove, like she probably clothed so many people who are getting married, you know what I mean? And so many people who are just celebrating the new year, the Khmai New Year in April. It's really special to think of her doing this work as a refugee who was really depressed having lost her husband, having lost her eldest son. I don't think I ever knew that she was like depressed, you know? I don't think we really talked about like mental health in my family growing up. But I would see her working. And I just wonder sometimes about her relationship to Cambodia, to the history. And I wish that I knew the language to really ask her. But now she's passed, and um, I've dedicated this book to her. I'm grateful that I can still be in conversation with her through this, through the poems. And of course, the cover of the book um, has the silk that. She wove for my mother. The gold fabric is the fabric that my mother wore for the first time, um, and I'm moved by her her work for sure.
0: That that was moving. By the way, uh, <laughs> I'm interested in um, in two things. One. Um, you said that was the last poem you wrote for the book, um, but it also draws its title um, from it. Did the, the title exist before the poem? And I get, And if not, why did that line in particular call out to you for the title? Um, and it's so blessed to me, I guess, too, that the book is dedicated to your grandmother that we get like these two poems. I think it's only two poems about that kind of center the loom um, mm-hmm. in some way mm-hmm. in the book. I'm wondering, how, how, do you see yourself as a weaver when you think about yourself as a poet? What of um, this art making of your grandmother do you see, if you do, do you see in the way you make poetry?
2: Yeah, um, I I do see myself as a weaver of words. Um, and when I said that This is the last poem that I worked on. I remember I was like taking a retreat with a friend of mine in Ithaca when it was snowing and it was cold. We decided to go to one of the gorges and it was so cold. Um, I needed to kind of get out of the slump I was in um, with my writing. I really needed to take that little trip, you know, and seeing something so large as this gorge and kind of being outside of myself and my writing being in that space. And also there was like a house, like kind of above the gorge too. And I was just thinking, what would it look like to even live in a house where you can look out your window and just see a waterfall? So it felt really magical. That's what helped me kind of get back into the process of writing the very last poem for the book. Um, The title, A Nail the Evening Hangs On, um, existed before the poem. Hmm. It came from this failed love poem And um, I studied with Yusuf Komunyaka, who I would give him a bunch of poems in in like his office hours. And he would go through each of them. And I think I was too embarrassed about the failed love poem. And I was just like, no, no, we don't have to read that. (laughs) And then he (laughs) said, I like this line. That would make a great title. So then I just thought about that for a really long time. As I was working on this book and as I was kind of piecing together the themes of like history and intergenerational traumas, like, Mm. and when I finally started working on Ode to the Loom, I wanted to be joyful about something, you know? Mm. And I thought a lot about like Pablo Neruda and some of his odes as well. Like Ode to the Suit is probably one of my favorite poems as well. I must have been reading some of his odes. He's praising something ordinary there's always a kind of moment where the ode goes into despair just a little bit. And then it goes back into praise. And I think that I couldn't write this ode without thinking about like my grandmother's depression. I think about just how hard it is to hold up your whole life, to hold up your whole world when so much has been shattered but there she is like weaving, you know, piecing things together and clothing people with this gift. When you ask me, are you a weaver too? I mean, I hope I hope I can call myself a weaver of words. Yeah. Yeah. Oh,
1: it's so beautiful. I mean, I love the idea of also of like having the title first and then having to kind of find your way to the title through writing the poems, you know, and getting to it at the end, like- I don't know. It's
2: it feels was a like journey. A... Yeah, was it? <laughs> yeah, it was a journey, yeah. Can you talk about it? Yeah, I mean, I just knew that that image spoke to me so much. And sometimes people will ask me, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean? But I just think, yeah, this is kind of a dramatic image, you know? I think that there can be many ways to read this title, not just in the context of Ode to the Loom, but if you can just think about one nail that holds up the entire evening, sometimes I feel like that nail that holds up so much as a second generation um, Khmer woman, who has parents who lived through the genocide. Like I connect to that, that responsibility, but then I connect to that weight. Sometimes it's a lot, you know, sometimes it's a lot like intergenerational trauma is a very real thing. Um, I learned what that was, like, as I was writing this book, you know, I learned that you can pass down these traumas.
0: Well, speaking of that, I mean, of, like, the book and what you learned from it, it's been almost a year since the release of the book. Yeah. You know, this is such a... Deeply personal and communal book. I'm wondering how has it been sharing this this work not only with intimate audiences, right? with other Kamai folks and Kamai women, um, but what has it been like sharing this work with people who uh, maybe sit outside of this narrative a little bit as well? Um, and how have those two experiences um, affected how you see the work and how you've been working since then
2: mm-hmm. Okay. so yeah, it's been a year. I celebrated the book on Leap Day 2020. And um, I just want to talk about how incredible that book launch was um, Mm. in Oakland at Eastside Arts Alliance. Um, It was such an incredible experience. My community came out, the elders came out, um, Mm. and there were really special moments during that night um, that I'll never forget. For example, um someone brought pizza
0: <laughs> just brought pizza just brought pizza on un- un- unprompted yes that's
2: great someone ordered like a lot of pizza and I was like wait 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 who ordered this pizza and I look around and I'm like Bung hai did you order the pizza he was like, oh yeah it was me <laughs> Like, and the pizza It was like from 7-Eleven. And I was like, who ordered 7-Eleven pizza to my book launch, you know? (laughs) But I thought that was so funny because I was actually kind of worried that I couldn't provide food. I didn't have the money to like provide food for the audience. And so I had I just had wine and like a cake. But I love that, you know, community came out. And they were like, you know, what do we bring? We don't just show up. They People always, Khmai people always will bring food. So I love mm. that there was food at my event because of my community. Um, but there's also like this really, really important moment. So there were dancers, the Morodok Khmai Performing Arts dancers from Stockton, and they did a blessing dance. And I really wanted to have a dance to be part of the show um, because I had lost a really dear friend of mine, um, his name is Jory Horn, and he um, he was a dancer, you know? And so he didn't get to come to the celebration, but he was able to kind of be there through this dance performance in a way. It was such a great time. And like towards the end of the event, as I grabbed my coat and I was about to make my way over to the bookstore next door to sign books, there was this young Khmer boy named Alan who like never came to this writing retreat. <laughs> that I was doing with, like, my friends, Danny Ten and the late Anthony Visna. So I always just see him kind of, like, smoking outside of the center, the community center, while his mom is inside. Like, I'm just like, wait, what are you doing skipping school right now, right? But he came up to me after my reading, and he just gave me this really big hug. And I was like, oh my god, he really needed that. He really needed that hug. And so, like, that was a really important moment for me, because something happened that night, you know, with the poems and with the community and with the all of the people there, with the dancers, like something happened that night for him when you ask me, how has my community responded um, here in Oakland? They've been so supportive and so loving, and um, they've shown up, but um, shortly after the book tour just was cancelled, and so I wasn't able to like, read in front of audiences and really understand, like, what it means to have that debut author experience. Um, But I do feel lucky that I was able to go to Tucson before my book launch. It was my first public reading. And I actually visited this, like, middle school. I visited this, like, ESL class. A lot of the students have histories like mine. And that was my first time, like, reading with my book in front of an audience was with these students. And when I was telling them about, like, familial silence and, like, the genocide and my parents' experiences, um, they understood, you know, because they come from those similar histories. Beyond that, I don't actually know how people are really responding to the book. I think people are reading it, and sometimes I get nice notes, but I have a lot of trouble celebrating what I have created due to a lot of reasons, um, grief being one. But it is difficult not knowing how to celebrate. This is a time to celebrate, you know? And at the same time, this is just a really (laughs) weird time to, to think about this being an accomplishment when I feel like there are so many losses that I've been thinking on, you know?
1: Yeah. It strikes me as like the same reason that maybe I heard you articulate that you wanted to have a praise poem, in the book, like in the midst of all of that grief, you know, like, God, when do we need celebration, like a reason to celebrate more than in the midst of such massive grief? Like, I I, I feel so grateful for the books that could kind of accompany me through the year. And I know that other people feel the same about your book and also about all the other 2020 and early 2021 releases, yeah, you know? absolutely. What is your relationship generally with praise and celebration as a writer?
2: Yeah, so I am writing new poems now that turn towards um, desire, and I'm trying to play more, trying to embrace the dailiness of my life in the poems. Um, People have told me that when they read uh, A Nail the Evening Hangs On, that they feel like it must have been psychically draining for me to write the book. And in so many ways, it was. But, um now I feel I had to break out of the poems that I've written in the first book. Um, sometimes people o- also tell me, like, I don't really see you in the poems as much, you know? Um, there are a couple of like self-portraits and, um, a poem where like I'm in New York City processing history, but it's such a narrow portrait of who I am because it really is just about like just me trying to understand the Khmer Rouge regime and my family's displacement, um, and what that means for me as a second generation daughter of survivors. And so that's a very particular part of me, but it's not all of who I am. So when you ask about celebration and praise, um, I mean, I I celebrate the fact that I'm here, I'm alive. It's raining here. The orchids are blooming. There is just so much to celebrate each day, each moment. And at the same time, sometimes I dip into that despair. I mean, I think that's just called being human. Life is suffering, you know? Um, but I try my hardest to like put my hand on my heart and have compassion for myself. And I think that reminds me to stay grounded in my actual writing process, you know? I think it is something you have to actively try to do is think about what it is that you love, who you love. You know, I'm really excited to keep on trying to celebrate exactly who I am as a whole person, not just as a daughter of survivors. Does that make sense? You know, I often feel like Cambodian literature is so is focused on survival literature. And so I, maybe I'll talk a little bit about the grief, you know, um, there are writers who I celebrate, like Anthony Visnasso and Kimar Lee Win, who created characters who were just so full and multitudinous. And I think that's what I'm in conversation with right now. I'm trying to get to the future. It took a very long time for me to meet people like Anthony, like Kimar Lee. They write about desire. You know what I mean they are imagining things that I don't think Cambodians have gone towards like in literature. Mm. And so losing them this past year has been just really painful. And I think that's also affecting the way I'm thinking about celebration and praise, because I also have to hold that process that, you know, that searching for celebration and praise alongside this grief. And that's just a very real process for me right now. Like, I don't know how else to get around. I I don't think I can get around grief. You know, I think that's going to be part of celebration and praise. Hmm.
0: I mean, first, I mean, I just want to offer my condolences as a friend. Um, of both those amazing writers, I didn't know Kim Marley, but I knew Anthony some, and he was just an incredible person. Is an incredible person um, with incredible words, and um, I can't wait for his book to still come out, and so we can still be touched by that genius uh, that we lost way too soon. Um, I loved reading your book again because it is so unlike a debut. Uh, collection, right, where most of us are sort of like, this is what it was like to be ages zero through 21. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, know, there was still some of you in there, but it felt like um, it felt black to me uh, or what I recognize as like a thing that black people do um, that I recognize happens in other diasporas, of course, of like it felt like you had to write the us in order to make way for for the I, right? It was like, let me write down my people first, uh, which I loved. And I'm wondering in the new poems, um, in these new griefs, right? Because it's not like the first book is not about grief. Um, what is Monica, the poet, able to do more in these new realms of the self when not tied so tied to persona, not so tied to the larger history that we share? What are the new tools you're picking up?
2: Something that I've been trying to do lately is not put too much pressure on myself I put a lot of pressure on myself with the first book um and trying to hold myself accountable to my community and my history um, and you know like Anthony and Kimar Lee and other my friends of mine they'd be like well you don't have to carry the whole community you know I needed that voice right so how do I tell myself to <laughs> put the pressure off right now like I think I'm just out here kind of trying to explore All the other things that I can do in poetry now that this first book is done, like, what was it like for you to finish your first books? Like, did you have um, trouble like creating new obsessions or even like starting other poems? Like, were you always like writing throughout, you know, uh, even as you finished, even as as you finished the first book?
0: The first book is like kind of like, you know, a little parade. It's like your I'm...
1: debutante ball, yeah. you know? <laughs> like,
0: yeah. yeah, I feel like we owe book tours to all the people who released books in 2020 and 21, I'm guessing at this point. <laughs> you know, we all need some parades. But to your question, I think I experienced um, my hardest like post-book Um, feeling after the third one because after the first one I was like already writing the second one by the time the first one came out and the same was true for the yeah the second into the third but by the time but after the third I was like what the fuck now
1: yeah not even like you were already writing you had like 30
0: 40 pages of your next book. But. <laughs> I was submitting the second one by the time the first one came out. That's wild. And I think it's because those three books, I kind of think about them and I didn't do this until Philip B. Williams had asked me about it, but they're kind of a trilogy. Um, I think their obsessions roll into each other so well and like you can see the links through all of them. And so it wasn't like Monica, I think I feel the hard, what I think you're talking about, which is like the the, the switch of obsession. That came after the third one because I was like, oh, I think I've answered those questions. Like, a year after that third one, I'm starting to feel creative again. The poems are coming again. Other things are coming, and they're new questions. And for me, the answer was time. It just took time to find those. And I felt so panicked when I didn't have obsessions and questions and things I wanted to do, Uh, when there wasn't another book to fall into. um, You know, I was like, maybe that was it. You know, maybe that was all the juice. And I can remember feeling like that, you know, even in in writing those collections. But now... um, I feel comfortable having gone through it and knowing that maybe next time I know my answer is time. I have to like trust that I'll still be a poet in the future, right? And sometimes that takes a big leap, right? And I'm glad for whatever in me last year kind of trusted that this year would come, right? Because now I'm back in poems and I'm back thinking um, and I'm back imagining and dreaming. Um, But it took trust to know that that feeling would return.
1: Yeah, I love that, Tenez. Yeah, I mean, my first book was really very much like a here's what I've been up to ages zero through 22, 23, you know, like so here's all the here's all my best stuff. Um, and like, I had so much admiration for, books that had like a really clear focus in theme you know the books that might be called project books and so like I knew I really wanted to do something like that and so I think that I I kind of like rode around until I found what the thing was and then it happened to be robots but then it turned out that like the thing that I chose was like very very vast and I was never going to be able to cover it all but at least it, it had gave me some kind of direction um Book two really was shaped by thinking about desire as well for me. I I mean, I don't think of my first book as a book that is exactly about excavating a historical past, but it is a book about that is um, sort of processing a lot of trauma and processing kind of like what it's been like up until the moment I showed up. And maybe that makes sense for the second thing to be like, because desire is like a future oriented feeling you know it's like I want this to happen I want to get to this to me it makes it I guess I don't know hearing you talk about that I, I was like yeah of course like what comes after cataloging the survival is the like okay like what next and like to call that desire makes yeah I don't know that makes sense to me also I think that I after the first book I was like I was like, well, my parents are just going to have to deal with the fact that I'm writing about sex. Like, you know, like <laughs> yeah. we had one or two poems in there and now they've gotten they've gotten kind of used to it. So we're just going to dive right in. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah, for sure. Like, I feel like I'm trying to get to a place where I can also write about those sex poems, too. And like, also just, you know, write about my body and writing against like all that body shaming that I grew up with and mm-hmm. all of that. I think Oh my gosh! Just pushing through all of that and getting to the language on the page, I think, is so so important to me right now too. Yeah. Um,
1: is there anything funky happening in the in the language in these poems about desire? Anything new or different?
2: I don't know exactly. You know, I really do rely on imagery in my poetics. I still am trying to incorporate like that into the new poems too but lately I've been thinking about tone as well how that needs to become something that I sharpen there are some things that I've been trying to work on and I'm not sure um, if I'll get back to it um, anytime soon but there were like some erasures that I've been working on um, for the last several years and I, I was digging through like old, old poems, kind of cherry picking the ones that I thought, I see a glimmer here. I still, I'm still thinking about this and I'm so glad that I'm revisiting this. I'm gonna put this in the doc now where I can actually like print it out and then like scribble things out and cross things out and write things in. Um, I don't know, like I, I think that in the last um, several years I had been on this fellowship and residency track And I didn't always have like a place to return to after those residencies had ended, you know? So that sense of home was also just something I had to establish as I was starting to really commit to the craft of poetry, really commit to this life of poetry. I had to learn that I needed a home for my mind.
1: What do you mean by home for your mind?
2: Like I had all my things, like I think that um, in 2016 that I had left, um, New York city to go on all of these different residencies. And after the residencies had ended, um, I would go back to like my parents' house, you know what I mean? In Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And I would go on little stints trying to just kind of like put together in my life. Do you know what I mean? Like I didn't have, I didn't know where I was going to go. I wasn't sure what was next, but then I had this fellowship in uh, Bucknell University that also was not a place for me in which I felt safe. And that was 2016, you know, um, the year that Trump had taken office. And I was just so out of place in that little town of Lewisburg. I didn't have like that safe space for my mind. Do you know what I mean? Like When I think of home, you gotta feel safe. Um, And so I was just just really struggling, trying to write poems about um, intergenerational trauma and trying to survive that institution as well. That wasn't home for me. It's just something that I still am trying to understand is, What kind of track, you know, was I on? Could I have entered this life in a different way outside of these institutions? And so sometimes I think about that. What kinds of poems could I write outside of the institution? I think about like poets like June Jordan, who... You know, tied the institution to the community and created like poetry for the people. It's now at UC Berkeley, but before I think it's st- maybe it was at San Francisco State University. I think. Do you know?
0: SF State sounds right, especially for like politically back in the day. Um, but it, I know it's at Berkeley now. And I don't know how long it's been there. Yeah. <laughs> when you say that though, it makes me think. Um, the problems with integration. You know, I think a lot of Black scholars think about, like, what did Black folks lose when we integrated, right, into these systems that were not designed for us? What did we lose once it wasn't exclusively Black? When you mentioned that, it makes me think about for poetry, what do we lose as these elders and ancestors opened doors for us that we could walk into these institutions that, you know, previously we would have had no or little access to. When actually maybe what fed us was being at Etheridge Knight's workshop that he taught out of his house or going to Cave Canum right? When it didn't have university funding, when it was just like with some in a church with some monks, right? Um, these spaces that we carved out for ourselves, are Actually, I think, you know, the most bountiful spaces we had. But when we start to marry them to the institution, right, we we end up, like you're saying, in these spaces that aren't really for us. Um, I left an MFA program for my own reasons. Um, and while I think, you know, that program is great in general, you know, I think there are a lot of folks... Um, have this grief, right? Especially writers of color, you talk to them, they have this this grief, this heaviness of dealing with institutions, folks saying, you know, my MFA almost made me stop writing, or I went to this thing and I felt so harmed by the faculty or by other poets that I no longer even wanted to participate in this art. You know, I think you know, this last year especially has given us an opportunity, every year <laughs> gives us an opportunity to think about it. Um, but how will we Trouble and unmarry ourselves from these institutions because even though oftentimes, right, they have the bread for us to live our lives, they don't allow us to live rich spiritual lives, you know, in ourselves and in the work oftentimes. Um, I don't know if I have a question or an a- or an answer, yeah, I'm just yeah. Like, yeah I'm, I'm thinking about it with you,
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and I appreciate you saying that. Um, First of all, I might sound very ungrateful to a lot of people who covet these kinds of opportunities, and so I want to also acknowledge how um, that narrative of gratitude—you um, should be grateful—has also been harmful for me. You know, while trying to create different futures in my poems and just trying to survive in these institutions, I had always been looking for myself and my community. I've always been looking for my people. Going to the library, where can I read about Cambodian people? I tried to look for my people in college, couldn't find any Khmer classes even outside of, even outside of that university. Only until now, now that I've passed through a lot of different institutional spaces, I can actually learn Khmer because I found um, a Khmer class actually through Cornell. I was actually connected to. Um, a linguistics PhD student at Cornell, who is Khmer, who I learn Khmer with like three times a week. You know, I feel like you have to create spaces. You have to create these opportunities when you don't see yourself. Um, When you don't see yourself, you have to ask for what you want, ask for what you need. And that's something I had to learn while navigating these spaces. Um, So now I've asked for a Khmer class. (laughs) And so I've been learning consonants and like there's like 33 consonants. I don't even know how many vowels. There's a lot of vowels. It's just such a beautiful language. Like when you spell out the language, um, my teacher will refer to the hat of the character or the leg. You know what I mean? The zheng of this consonant. Like I've been learning a lot. The other day, I learned the word anxious in Khmer. I never knew how to say it. And I thought to myself, damn, how come I don't know how to say anything other than happy in Khmer? And it made me think about like the limited vocabulary that I grew up with, you know? Um, And my parents, um, they often wanted me to practice English with them so they could improve their English. So then I eventually lost my Khmer. And so I think about like Soma Sharif, one of her lines in a poem, um, English being the first defeat. I think about that a lot. And how the Khmer language was lost so early in my in my life, and something that I'm trying to get back to now. But I've been learning Khmer for the last two months, and now I can read. And that's incredible to me that I'm like putting these things together, sounding them out like I can't recognize the language, you know, the the words, like the sounds. Like I can just look at Kamai and piece it together. I'm so excited about that. And maybe in the future, I'll learn Khmer poetry forms. Maybe in the future, I can learn um, how to translate Khmer poetry. The word to translate is bat which literally means to flip and fold. Ah, so cool. I know, right? I love how poetic the language is. And um, also the word to like, "joljet," which is a word I I know how to say. Like, my, I knew how to say this my whole life. But like my teacher broke it down, and he said, "Joel like means to go inside, and Jet is like this old, maybe archaic way of saying the heart. So when you like something, hmm. you take it inside the heart." Oh, I learned that brother number one, like "bang ti moy, it means gangster. But "bang
0: of course, yes, brother number
2: <laughs> one, yes, gangster. <laughs> but then brother number two, "bang ti b," it means cop. So, (laughs) you know there's just lots of wow lots of things that i'm learning but i also love how we were learning tenses the other day and like as a poet taking this language class right like i just connect things and so my teacher was like uh we didn't get to it today in class but next class we're going to practice the past and the future and I, and (laughs) i know he's talking about tenses but my poet mind is like wow, we're going to time travel, you know, (laughs) we're going to practice the past and the future at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I used to think that there were no tenses in Khmer. Um, I heard that somewhere from someone and like, I never verified if that was true or not, but you know, someone just said, yeah, everything happens in the present. I thought about that. And I was like, oh, that sounds amazing. But then now I'm learning. No, there are words to describe the past and the future. Um, That's just me trying to fill in the gaps of my knowledge of this language that I've grown up hearing my whole life and speaking a little bit here and there in a fragmented way, like a child, like I'm a child speaker. So learning Khmai is like also helping me work through this kind of shame you know, um, it's very telling to everyone in the class like how my family might have spoken to me, you know like. <laughs> <laughs> So it's, it's something that really does invigorate me though, maybe that is helping me go towards desire too in a way. and maybe it's helping me to kind of heal something in order to get to the future. <laughs>
0: Now it is time for the most entertaining and wild and careless part of the show, um, the games. Monica, our first game is going to be Fast Punch, in which we're going to give you 10 categories, and you're going to tell us either the best or the worst of that category um, as fast as you can. Monica, would you like to be a pessimist or an optimist today?
2: I'm going to choose to be an optimist today because other days I'm a pessimist.
1: (laughs) Great. (laughs) Love it. Love it.
0: We love it. All right. For any, you want to go first?
1: Yes. Okay. First is um best kind of tree.
2: Eucalyptus. Ooh, great answer.
0: All right. Best person in the audience while you're reading.
2: Your student who you haven't seen mm. in a minute. Oh, and the auntie and the elders. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going, I'm just going to be like everyone I love. <laughs> It's <laughs> yeah, great. Um, best kmai food. Oh my god, that's a hard one. Um some laquerie curry. curry with the noodles. I like the noodles. Okay. Mm.
0: Best poetry form.
2: The ones that I don't even know yet.
0: Um mm.
2: the, the kmai poetry forms that I haven't even learned yet.
1: Love that. Um best Pre-sex thing, best what? thing to happen before sex,
2: as like a sort of pre- precursor. Um, like a kiss. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, yeah, I'm cool, just gonna sure. go with that. Which is also like, damn, I would love to experience a kiss right now. But go on. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. a kiss on the cheek. Oh, how how lovely that that would feel. Mm-hmm. Which means I'm going to kiss both of you on the cheek when I see you in person. Next. Oh my God, yes, <laughs> yes.
0: I will take a kiss, but if this goes on for another year, I might need to make out. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no no strings attached, just making out with everybody. Else.
2: <laughs> with all of our friends.
0: Yes. All right. Um, best fabric.
2: Oh, I'm so slow at fast punch. <laughs> I'm just going to say the fabric um, that my grandma wove, the gold one.
0: Hmm.
2: Best boba. I don't know if you're a boba person. I love boba, but I'm a little basic. It's just that black milk tea, boba tea. And I would put some honey boba in there. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Honey boba. Mm-hmm.
0: Best animal?
2: Um, The octopus.
1: Yes.
0: Ooh. Mm.
1: Very solid answer. Um. Okay.
2: Best spot in Oakland to sit and read? I like the Rose Garden. The Morecambe
0: Rose mm. Garden. All right. Last one. Best image you've ever put in a poem?
2: Oh, um, it's a new, (laughs) it's a new poem. And, um, there's a scrotum of lavender buds.
0: Oh, wow.
2: That's a new poem (laughs) that I'm going to keep that image in there. Even though I've been told lots of things, um, by (laughs) Louise Glick who read the poem and was just like, why are there genitals in this poem? And, All my other friends are just like, (laughs) keep it. (laughs) That makes the poem, you know what it is. So hopefully you'll see that in the future.
0: (laughs) I can't wait. Coming soon to a book
1: near you, (laughs) Scrotum of Lavender Buds. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Congratulations, Monica. You won. Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: (laughs) Man, honestly, even if the poem is just Scrotum of Lavender Buds, I'd be like, yeah, that's great. (laughs) Yeah,
2: absolutely.
0: It could be that for 14 lines. And I'd be like, yep.
2: <laughs> that's, that's the always the image of people are like, oh, yeah, I connect to that, you know? And, yeah.
1: I can really see myself here. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: amazing.
0: I hope to never see that sack in real life. Amen.
2: It's hilarious, too, because it's a bath bomb. Like, it was referring to a bath bomb. Oh. <laughs> and I'm proud of this image, and I'm happy to incorporate this in the poem. So I'm going to keep it.
1: <laughs> Great. Okay. This versus that? Yep. So now we're going to play this versus that. Um, The game where we put two things in opposite corners and um, you tell us which one will win in a fight, a physical fight. Um, So in this corner, we have the praise poem. And in that corner, we have the survival poem. Praise poem versus survival poem. Who wins
2: in a fight? survival (laughs) survival would win i think yeah tell us walk us through it um because survival is surviving (laughs) like like, i just think that if you put survival and praise into in a fight like survival will want to come out on top first and then praise will come later you know what i mean (laughs) Mm. like that was great oh i (laughs) learned so much from that fight
1: (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs)
0: Yeah, I feel like they're like doing two different things. Like, like, praise is maybe trying to box, but like, survival's in a death match. You yeah, know? survival Survi-
1: is trying to scrap. Yeah. Survival is scrappy. Yeah. <laughs> survival scrappy.
0: Survival's got weapons, you know? <laughs> right,
1: right, right. Survival, like, like, was explicitly told that knives are not allowed, but brought one just in
2: case. Right, or made one and <laughs> <Or> brought it. <laughs>
0: survival has had the same blade in their cheeks since seventh grade like like, literally don't fuck with that yeah
1: yeah no that's that one's in retrospect that one seems pretty clear (laughs) well congratulations survival poem you did it again yeah (laughs) got through it
0: are you ready for our last and final and strangest game tell me what it is. Yes. All right, Monica, this is our new game from Franny's Mind called This Versus Something Else. Um <laughs> and we're going to ask you to choose between this reality, this, or another reality that we just made up, something else, and you tell us which one you rather live in. And so, today, Uh, We have either this bullshit or in the other corner, you can live in a world where every time you write a poem about a memory, you lose the memory and can only remember it when you read the poem. Oh,
2: wow. Y'all are wild. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of realities do you come up with on your free time? <laughs> um, Very
0: poetry specific ones.
2: So. <laughs> wow. So you just lose the memory until yeah. and you read the poem. Mm.
0: I think about it as you lock the memory in the poem. Right.
2: Uh-huh.
0: That's how that kind of translates to me. Because you can get the memory back, but only whenever you read the poem. Right?
2: Right. It's like an exorcism kind of but it's like if you read the poem, would you know that it's a memory? okay okay, cool whoa, whoa, whoa. um I think I would stay in this reality really yeah there are lots of memories that I still have to learn from that I have to cycle through many, many times. you know you revisit things at various points in your life and you learn something new like it just sometimes it just illuminates for you in a different way like mm. so if it, if I read the poem, in the other reality and I remember that memory only when I read the poem. I wouldn't learn the full a full lesson, you know? Mm. So
1: right. Cause you'd only read you'd only remember the memory as it was written in the poem. So there's no like other
2: yeah because then this mm. is like you said is locked into that poem. And mm. what if there's other ways to shape language around that memory. So I I think that would mm. limit me perhaps in mm. the way that I think or imagine or even dream. For
1: sure, for sure. Wow. Yeah. Also, I feel like I mean I have a bad memory, so I feel like I would just run out of poems fast. <laughs> like I only remember like so maybe twenty five know. <laughs> <laughs> right, just being like, wait, what happened? How old was I? You know, eventually I would have to go with poem only write poems that were like, well, today I did this. <laughs>
0: Well, you actually would have to write, like, poets in that world, like, there's such a risk to be an autobiographical then, right? So they're either, like, all writing an imagination, or they're just, like, you know, persona, making up some shit. Because, like, to write your memory, that'd be such a huge act, to be like, I'm ready to let this go, you wow. know? Wow, shit. Yeah. I mean, yeah, what, like, what would poets be if, like, you couldn't write about yourself without losing yourself, right? <laughs> I mean, don't we already? Oh, fuck, this question fucked me up, damn. <laughs>
2: I mean, if I were in that world, I would write memories that I don't want to remember.
0: Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. It, you, and like, that's the... Write a poem to flush it out. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. But then like, if you have memories that you do want to remember, <laughs> it'll just, oh, no, that's too much. I'll stay in this world happily. <laughs> yeah. Wow.
1: Well, well, congratulations to this current reality for, <laughs> for beating out at least that other one. <laughs> if not many, at least that one. Okay. Well, I think that that is yeah. Well, that th- thus concludes our interview and the games. Um, Monica, thank you so much for spending this time with us. It's been such a joy and such a good thing for our brains and our hearts. Um,
2: where can people find more of your work? You can go online to my website at um, monicasook.com. I'm on Instagram at Monica Juice and Twitter at monicasookwrites And I think that's it, right? That's all I have to tell you. Okay. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Your phone number.
2: (laughs) My mailing address. You can send me things. No, I'm playing. (laughs) Please don't. Don't do that unless you're my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: congratulations again on your book. It's so beautiful. And if you haven't gotten a copy of A Nail the Evening Hangs On, um, make sure you do that. Um, And Monica, would you do us the honor of
2: closing us out with one more poem? Absolutely. Yes. Here is the poem. Um, A new poem. That's not in the book. Ode to the Boy Who Jumped Me. You and your friend stood on the corner of the liquor store as I left Champa Garden. Take out in hand on the phone with Ashley who said, that was your tough voice. I never heard your tough voice before. I gave you boys a quick nod, walked East 21st past Dark Houses. Before I could reach the lights on park, you crisscrossed your hands around me like a friend and I'd hoped that you were saying the boy I'd kissed on first Friday in October. He paid for my lunch at that restaurant, split the leftovers, but that was a long time ago and we hadn't spoken since. So I dropped to my knees to loosen myself from your grip, my back to the ground. I kicked and screamed, but nobody in the neighborhood heard me. Only Ashley on the other line in Birmingham, where they say, how are you, to strangers. Not what I said in my tough voice, but what I last texted saying, no response. You didn't get on top. You hovered. My elbows banged the sidewalk. I threw the takeout at you and saw your face, young, more scared of me than I was of you. Hands on my ankles, I thought you'd take me or rape me. Instead, you acted like a man who slipped out of my bed and promised to call? You said nothing, not even what you wanted.
0: Mind a fucking call, everybody, goddamn. Always better than Brandy. (laughs) The boy is still hers. Um, What a beautiful conversation that was.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Such a beautiful conversation that went to so many places that feel, I don't know, that I just like felt really deeply. Um, Yeah.
0: You know what Nugget has um, stars and whistles all around it in my heart? Um, When she said finding a home for her mind.
1: Yeah, totally. It can feel so like beautiful to have that and so lonely not to have it, you know? Yeah. What comes to mind for you when you hear that phrase, a home for the mind?
0: Oh, um, the physical location that comes up for me is a place I miss. It's Lather Paul, which is the dance department um, at UW-Madison. In first Wave? Yeah, and First oh. Wave. And so First Wave, my college program, our, our workshops were hosted there. And it was just a building that, you know, for those five years, I came to associate with learning, with trying stuff out, with writing and performing, with just, like, the work, you know? And it, it cha- the way I walked to that building was different than when I walked to other places because it was a place that where we went to think and make and fuck up and, you know, and excel. And so that's one of the biggest things I, I miss from college is, like, having, like, these, like, places that um, I associate with making the work and going there to, like, do the thing. And so... I knew I could go there and be pushed and be loved, and like that was that was the work too, not just you know, making content, but the community of of which of folks that fed my art and that expected something of me. I think for the rest of my life, I'll be like trying to find that um elsewhere and trying to recreate that and thankfully, I can't you know um what about for you? what is there a place that comes up, or what do you think about when you hear home for the mind?
1: I mean, I think of spaces honestly like dark noise you know that was a space that has sustained my mind heart for years that like like i don't know i just like i i so miss our retreats where like we might all be like in like a living room kitchen and some airbnb and You know, somebody's making a snack and Aaron's answering emails and Fati's like writing an entire script and like somebody will just say something into the room and then three other people are down to be like right there with them, like intellectually and
0: spiritually.
1: You know, that shit is so rare. And I don't know, I just miss it every day.
0: That just shows, you know, our retreats, you know, have never been in the same place. You know, we don't have the keys to anywhere altogether. Like a person can be a home for your mind too, right? Because that's what that is, right? It's not physical at all. Like you are a home for my mind, right? Mm-hmm. I trust I trust you with my thoughts, you know? Yeah. I'm excited to share my thoughts with you, right? That's also what a home for the mind is. It's not, you know, I think it is beautiful to have the physical space, especially I think we all are pining for the physical space of somewhere else and oh other my God. people any other
1: physical space any other physical space on this one i would like to but be
0: yeah. some new places and smell yeah. some new niggas like, oh my God. <laughs>
1: like- i don't want to look at
0: different walls <laughs> look, you know what just, i mean yes i just want to look at different walls some by like, other anyway. beiges the warmth of other beiges, <laughs> <laughs> the of other beiges. <laughs> but at oh. the same time you know like we can still you know i think like I think about the people I've been excited to call and text, right? And that is also like me saying hey, like you are a person who like who's a home.
1: Totally. Yeah. And also I will I will also say that, you know, like right now I feel incredibly lucky that Cameron is like my it's like my number one mind companion, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I feel like my mind has a has like a place to be home, you know? By which I mean, when I when I burst into the room and say, "What do you think about this, Cameron?"s Often like, hmm, and then gives it <laughs> feedback, <laughs> and like, what a fucking gift! My God, what a gift! Aww. Yeah, yeah. Let's um go ahead and thank some people um and get on out of here. Um, so I guess I'll dedicate my little end of episode thank you to the poets and artists in Detroit who uh, in my two years after my two years at the University of Michigan um, made a home and a community for me and were like friends and family of my mind there for that year that I spent there. So shout out to all of you.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, I'm going to take another like poet home of the, for the mind. Um, when I lived in the Bay Area, I had the wonderful pleasure of going to the Starry Plow um, on Wednesday nights and kicking it in Berkeley with some wonderful and amazing poets. Um, that was like my last sort of dip into regular slamming. And I'm, I miss slamming so much, but I miss slamming there so much because it was such a good room of folks that were just bringing in such incredible work and trying to have fun and in all seriousness, push what their work was doing and who who was doing it. So shout out to folks like Toaster and Tatiana Brown and Jason Biani and, you know, all the crew, Jazz Sufi, y'all know what's good. Um, thank you the bay i miss that yeah Mm -hmm. oh i'm going to some slams when this shit's over all right anyways (laughs) Freddie. we
1: Um, we also want to thank uh our producer daniel kisslinger um we want to thank it's a blanca at the poetry foundation thank you to post loudness and thank you to all of you for continuing to listen to us in our fifth and final season
0: (laughs) i know oh yeah Please make sure you like, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure you follow us on Twitter at BSThePodcast. And with that, y'all, uh, we are going to get out of here. Thank you so much for your time and attention today. Love you. Be safe.
2: Be safe. Goodbye.
1: Boom.